Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Scripture for today's sermon is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not impossible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, we are grateful for your word through which, by your spirit, you manifest power. And that's what I pray that you would do now. That you would show us more the wisdom and the power made manifest in the crucified Christ, what the world sees as weak and foolish. May that power invade our hearts, our minds, and transform us to look more like the Jesus we behold for his glory. We pray these things in his name and by your spirit. Amen. So if you haven't had a chance, I do invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As we are continuing our series through the book of Corinthians, which we've simply entitled Called to be Saints. So what this whole book is about. The Apostle Paul is writing to this fledgling church in the city of Corinth, and it is a confused church, confused because it is constantly living in the exact same way as the culture that surrounds it. And Paul's like, no, that's not you are to be, you're to be saints. Saints simply means set apart. You are a set apart people. Set apart for what? For God and for his purposes. And this entire letter is designed to show us what that looks like. What it looks like in the midst of a surrounding pagan culture to live set apart as saints. That's what we're trying to see. And so today, we start by trying to see that through Wiley e. Coyote. As a kid, one of my favorite Saturday morning cartoons was Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. I don't know if you're familiar. My kids and I, we still watch it. I still laugh just as hard as I did when I was their age. If you're not familiar with this cartoon, the premise is simple. There's a coyote named Wile E. Wile E. Coyote. And he has a singular aim. And the singular aim is to catch this really ridiculously fast bird called the Roadrunner. And he tries every available means that Acme puts at his disposal. Acme is the fictitious catch-all company that sells everything from dynamite to rocket skates to whatever. All of these different means, these devices that he could try, the coyote could try to use in order to catch this Roadrunner. So one aim, millions of means, and the hilarity of the whole thing is that he simply fails again and again and again. One aim, millions of means, perpetual failure. That is the situation that the Corinthians are in. The Corinthians, in their culture, they have one aim, glory. Actually, I would argue that the one aim is joy. They want to be happy. 
like everybody does. We all want to be happy, and they think that this happiness will be found in glory, achieving glory for themselves. Corinth is a place all about self-promotion, self-sufficiency. It's, it's, it's about how much glory can I attain for me. That's how my life will have purpose, meaning. That's what will give me identity. That's what will make me happy. And the Corinthians, their surrounding culture, it offers them all sorts of available means in order to achieve that glory for themselves. The one that they have currently seized upon is sophistry. Do you remember? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the sophist. If you don't remember, the sophist in the first century were basically traveling teachers uh, they would end up in cities like Corinth where they would come in order to try and set up a school. And the way they would do that is they would gather around people to hear them lecture. They'd let you pick whatever hot topic you would like, and then extemporaneously, they would impress you with their extensive vocabulary and their catchy rhetoric, their ability to, to be witty and to, to turn a phrase. you you, you got to understand, the sophists, they cared nothing about communicating truth to you. They simply cared about impressing you. And if you found a sophist that you found particularly impressive, you might join their school in order to impress your friends. Our culture is not like this anymore. We definitely are not impressed when people get people of social standing to, say, follow them back on Instagram or retweet them. You're retweeted by who? Who liked your tweet? Or I don't even know what you call it anymore now that it's like the, the whole, act, whatever it is. I don't know. Moving on. But this was the means that they used to try and achieve glory, identity, to make me somebody, meaning. I, the means I would use would be to put my trust, my faith, in my favorite sophist and ride their coattails to the top. But, like Wally Coyote, the Apostle Paul knew that that ride would lead the Corinthians ultimately straight off a cliff. Because whatever sophist you attach yourself to today will be old news tomorrow. Like the means that culture gives you for achieving meaning, purpose, identity, those means are ever shifting and changing and therefore leave you sinking. As if you're trying to build your life on a foundation made of sand. Any attempt to like find your identity, meaning glory with anything that the culture offers. Paul basically says to Corinth, that's just going to blow up in your face, leaving you looking for the next thing in which to place your faith. But don't worry, the culture always has another means to hand you. Following a sophist didn't work out. Try, try money and possessions. Perhaps that will give your life purpose and meaning. Try relationships and education. Perhaps that will give you an identity. But shades, all of these different means, they might as well be labeled acme because they're just bound to blow up in your face. One aim, millions of means, perpetual failure. Do you feel that? Like whatever the culture has offered you to build your life upon, have you not felt those things fail and fall through over and over and over again, leaving you feeling ridiculous and frustrated as if your faith that you placed in all of these different things just keeps failing. It shades, it leaves us asking, is there anything that can actually serve as a foundation for our faith? 
a place that we can put our trust in which we can build upon our lives that can give us a firm identity, value, meaning, all of these things. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 answers that question, yes. There is a foundation for your faith, one that is not sinking sand, but is a solid rock upon which you can stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, Shades, there is one aim for your life. And there is only one means to attaining it. One aim, one means that doesn't lead to perpetual failure, but that will actually lead to persevering faith, a faith that is planted on a firm foundation. There is one foundation for those called to be saints. That's what Paul wants Corinth and us to see. See it with me. 1 Corinthians 2. Let's start in verses 1 through 2. And I, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So far in our study, we have seen repeatedly that the Corinthians live in a culture of self-promotion. And as we read throughout chapter 1 and right here at the beginning of chapter 2, we see the things that they used to promote themselves. They boasted in their wisdom. They boasted in their social standing. And primarily, we've seen they've boasted in the powerful people that they rubbed shoulders with, those sophists we were talking about. These, these are the pillars, if you will, the foundation supporting their self-promotion. And in the opening chapters of this book, Paul has been systematically knocking these pillars out from underneath the Corinthian Christians. Just go back and read chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And there he says, wisdom, you boast in that. You can't boast in wisdom, Corinthian Christians. Why? For the word of the cross is folly. Foolishness in the eyes of this world. It leaves you with an inability to boast. You look like a fool to everybody. Read chapter 1, verses 26 to 30, and he says, you want to try and boast in your social standing? You can't do that. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You can't boast in your wisdom. You can't boast in your social standing. And in our text today, Paul will say, you cannot boast in the powerful people you rub shoulders with. That's precisely the primary thing we've seen the Corinthian Christians trying to do. You remember all the way back up in chapter 1 and verse 12, what were they all saying? They were saying things like, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's, that's Peter. I rub shoulders with this church founder, with this church teacher. The, the Corinthians were treating their preachers like powerful sophists who could prop up their own self-promotion. And Paul says, let me knock that pillar down. And I, I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come like a sophist. I didn't come like a sophist you could use to prop up your own popularity. Shades, shades, do, do you see? You see, Paul is systematically knocking down Every pillar of self-promotion, every wily coyote means that the Corinthian Christians are trying to use for their own glory. In our text today, he knocks down the pillar of Paul. 
You want to try to use me as a powerful person you've rubbed shoulders with? Let me tell you about me. He won't let the Corinthians try and use him as part of the foundation for their faith. As if he is powerful. He knocks that pillar down and he does it with three things. Proclamation, presence, and purpose. Proclamation, presence, and purpose. Let's take those things one at a time. First, proclamation. This is what Paul is talking about in verses 1 and 2, about the way he delivered the message of the gospel, about what his proclamation looked like when he was amongst them. Let's read verse 1 again. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. A proclamation wasn't like the sophists, with all their speech and wisdom. Okay, Paul, I hear you. What does that mean? What does it mean that his speech was not lofty or wisdom like the sophists? Well, he's contrasting himself with the sophists. And what we know about them is that they were masters of rhetoric, argumentation, debate, witty turns of phrase. Does, does that mean, as Paul saying, that he doesn't use any of those things? I don't think that's what he means at all. Because if you just read the book of Acts, you will see Paul constantly in debate. This is his missionary strategy. When he first arrives at a city, he goes to the synagogue and he reasons from the scriptures. He uses the tool of logic. He, He argues. He makes his point. He debates. He doesn't just do that. Paul uses rhetoric all over the place. Just just read his letters. If you want, we can sit down over coffee and I can show you how even the verses that we're reading right here, Paul has been using a classical rhetoric format to make his argument. He uses rhetorical devices all throughout this letter. In chapter 4, we're going to see him use intense sarcasm. In chapter 12, we'll see him use a, a vivid metaphor. In chapter 13, who doesn't know chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? It's the love chapter. You can't deny the lyrical, poetic beauty of that chapter. In chapter 15, as he discusses the resurrection, he's going to use tight logic. Paul does this everywhere. So, so what does he mean that he didn't use lofty speech? tells us what he means. Verse 2. Four grounding clause. Here's what I mean. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not using lofty speech or wisdom means for Paul that he did not use speech to promote himself, but to promote Christ. The sophist used words to showcase their own wisdom. Paul uses words to showcase his folly. Because all of his speech, he says, every argument, every turn of phrase, all his alliteration, allegories, assonance, and allusions. He did there. He uses all of those things. And all of it is aimed at the glory of the crucified Christ. The last thing that in his cultural setting seems wise. 
Crucifixion? I don't think we quite grasp. We, we wear crosses as necklaces. We don't quite grasp the grotesque nature of crucifixion and the way it was felt, the way people felt about it in the first century. It was, it was beyond shameful. It was unmentionable in polite conversation. Like nobody talked about it. Uh, one commentator said that Paul preaching about crucifixion would be like you at a dinner table trying to entertain your guests by describing. Uh, rats eating a dog carcass you saw on the street. Like you ever had somebody bring something up at the dinner table where you're like, I just lost my appetite? That's crucifixion. That's, that's how absurd Paul sounded. And on, on top of that, Paul didn't just proclaim a message that centered on crucifixion. He proclaimed a message that centered on a crucified Christ. Christ, anointed one, it's the word for Messiah, it's the word for, for Savior. By definition, a Savior is one who saves, not one in need of saving. Yet this Savior looked like he needed to be saved desperately. Beyond that, Paul didn't just proclaim a crucified Christ, he proclaimed a crucified Christ that he claimed was God. The gods are supposed to give life, not lose it. Yet this is the proclamation upon which Paul sets his sights. I decided, he said. I decided not to be like the self-promoting sophists. No, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't care how foolish it makes me look. The sophist used words to showcase their wisdom. Paul uses words to showcase his folly. That's what he means by I did not use lofty words that your world would see as wise. I focused on nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which that, when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, that doesn't mean that he never touched on any other piece of Christian doctrine other than the crucifixion. No, he's going to touch on all sorts of other pieces of Christian doctrine throughout this letter. What he means is that no matter what he's talking about, the crucified Christ is the bullseye. The crucified Christ was the, the foundation of everything that Paul taught. When, when the Corinthians wished that Paul would be a little bit more like a sophist and offer kind of like the latest street wisdom, the latest life hacks, if you will, Paul, when are you going to give us our 10 tips to a better marriage like the sofas down the street? Paul would talk about marriage and he would bring husbands and wives back to the crucified Christ. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. When the Corinthians wanted uh, answers to personal disagreements, between Christians. We, we disagree about whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols. What, what do you think, Paul? He'd bring them back to the crucified Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 11, don't destroy your brother for whom Christ died. When they asked Paul about sexual ethics, which were all over the place in ancient Corinth. When they asked him about sex and what I choose to do with my body, my gender, my sexuality, my identity. He'd say, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, the crucified Christ. So glorify God in your body. 
Paul's proclamation wasn't lofty. It was lowly because it was all aimed at the glory of the lowly crucified Christ. That was the foundation of his proclamation, which knocks down the pillar of self-promotion. That's not all, Shades. Second, talked about proclamation. Second, presence. Presence. Paul knocks down the pillar of self-promotion in verses 3 and 4 by talking about his preference, his presence. Uh, you got to understand, the sophists, they didn't just use words to showcase their wisdom. They used presence to showcase their power. The sophists were known for having a powerful presence. Like they, they could command a room. They knew how to work a room. They could captivate an audience. What about Paul? What was his presence like? Verse 3. And I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The sophists use presence to showcase their power. Paul's presence showcased his weakness. What does that mean? Scholars aren't really sure. Paul could be talking about literal physical weakness. There are several things he says throughout his letters that seem to imply Paul didn't have the greatest health. And that he probably struggled with some ongoing chronic issues. Check out Galatians 3.14, or some people would even say 2 Corinthians 12. Could be talking that he was literally physically weak. Or he could just mean that his public speaking wasn't particularly dynamic. 2 Corinthians 10.10. Paul says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Regardless of what he means, his ultimate point is the same. His presence was unimpressive, weak, not characterized by strength. No, he says his presence was characterized by fear and trembling. What does that mean? I was with you in fear and trembling. Again, scholars don't really know. Perhaps, perhaps as an apostle of the living God, with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel where people have never heard it, perhaps Paul came trembling with fear of the Lord. He talks about those kinds of things. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you. Perhaps Paul knows God's the one working in me through this gospel. That leaves me with fear and trembling. This is fear of the Lord. Or perhaps it was fear of man. I mean, he is entering a large city with a bunch of crazy citizens. He has no idea what they will do to a man proclaiming a crucified Christ. I mean, just go back and read Acts 18 where Paul visits Corinth for the first time. That's what he's talking about right here in 1 Corinthians 2. I, when I came to you, back in Acts 18. Go read that account and see how he has to be reassured by the Lord. Acts 18 and verse 9, the Lord gives him a vision one night, and this is what the Lord says to him. Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. So when Paul comes to the Corinthians with fear and trembling, is he talking about fear of God or fear of man? 
My guess? Probably both. Because that's my experience, Shades, every Sunday. When I stand up to preach, it is with fear and trembling because this is the gospel of God. How dumb do you have to be to stand in front of people and claim to speak truths about God? Pretty dumb, Shades. I, I get nervous every time I do this because I am haunted, haunted by James 3 and verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That keeps me up every Saturday night. Anyone who speaks about God without fear and trembling doesn't know what they're doing. But simultaneously, shades, lest you think I am this stalwart of faith who fears the Lord with great fear and trembling, at the exact same time, I would be lying if I don't also confess that every Sunday I feel the fear of man. Because I know that I preach a gospel, a message that cuts across the grain of our culture. I, I have anxiety every Monday when I open my email. It makes me feel a little better knowing the Apostle Paul felt the same thing as you and me. That his presence wasn't impressive, it was one of weakness and fear, and trembling. Not like the sophists of his day with their confident airs to command a room, and not like the sophists of our day. Oh, you know our sophists, right? With all their unwarranted confidence. Come on. Like every cultural talking head propounds every issue as if they are the expert. Their powerful presence, overly confident. Or how about on the news, all of the powerful-seeming pundits as they share their expert political opinions on every issue, and if the world would just listen to them, it would be nirvana and peace on earth. Or how about all the perfect social media influencers who have all the answers to exactly how you should live your life? All of these modern-day sophists aim to boost our own self-confidence and lead us towards arrogant self-reliance. Shades, true servants of the gospel come with a completely different posture, a completely different presence, one that admits weakness and despairs of all self-reliance so that with fear and trembling, we might find footing on the only truly powerful foundation. What is that? Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Do you get what he's saying right here? In, in, in other words, Paul says, my proclamation and my presence, they weren't powerful, but something was, Corinth. Not my proclamation. My speech were not implausible words of wisdom. Not, not my presence, that was weakness. But something was powerful. When I proclaimed this foolish gospel with my weak presence, something powerful happened. The Holy Spirit showed up. There was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. He showed up through this 
foolish message and this weak messenger. He showed up in power and he saved you, gave you life through the crucified Christ. My message demonstrated the Holy Spirit's power. You couldn't credit it to me. You couldn't credit it to what I said. You couldn't credit it to my presence. The only thing it could be credited to was the Spirit himself. When Paul says that there was a demonstration of the Spirit's power, he's not talking about miracles right here. He's talking about the Spirit's power to work through the gospel to bring about new life. He says that explicitly. My speech and my message, my message was not in plausible words of wisdom. No, my message was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's what he said back up in chapter 1 and verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is what? The power of God. Paul is saying, Corinth, Something powerful happened to you when I came, but don't think for a second that it had anything to do with me, with my proclamation or my presence, so that you might be left boasting and being associated with me. No, let me knock that pillar of self-promotion down, for the power that you experienced was because of the presence of the crucified Christ. My proclamation, my presence should only serve to point you to him. He is your faith's foundation. Shades, this is the third and final thing that Paul uses to knock down the pillar of self-promotion. Third, purpose. We've seen him talk about proclamation. We've seen him talk about presence. Now he pulls back and he says, here's the reason. Here's the reason I'm talking about all that. Here's the purpose. Here's why I've taken so much time to knock down your culture's pillars of self-promotion. Look at verse five. So that... Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, so, so that you might not be like Wiley e. Coyote, trying every possible means that our culture calls wise hey, here's another thing on which to build your life. Here's another thing on which to build your life. Build, build your, your life on our wise words, our wise words about parenting, our wise words about relationships or healthy living, because those are foundations that are never shifting, right? Parents of a generation ago, none of the parenting advice you received has changed, has it? I cannot wait for all the ways my kids will mock me. Because I live in a generation that believes we finally got this parenting thing figured out. Thousands of years of human beings couldn't do it, but we are God's gift to humanity. Our children are going to need some serious therapy. Culture will hand us all sorts of means. Build your life on what science says. We've never had to rethink that. Build your life on our modern concept of identity because that's not ever evolving. Still, our culture beckons. Build your life on our proclamation. Build your life on, on our powerful presence, on what we proclaim as being powerful. B build your life on our sources of power, like uh, the power of money. 
That's a firm foundation that will always make you feel in control. Right? Interest rates, anyone? Build your life on the power of politics. That will give you permanent influence. Definitely it won't merely be a flash in the pan of history. Shades, the proclamation and the power of our culture, they are shifting sands. Here today, different tomorrow, they will never be a firm foundation for your faith. I, I want so badly to knock those pillars down for you so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men. It can't rest there. I love the choice of that word, rest. Your faith can't rest there because the wisdom of man is ever-changing, leaving your faith restless. Verse 5, where that, that word rest in verse 5, the Greek behind it is the word amy. Amy. It's, it's the Greek verb to be, to exist. Paul says, I don't want your faith to exist, to try and find its existence, its being on the wisdom of men. That will leave you existentially restless. Because that's a foundation constantly changing and shifting. The only place your faith can find rest is in the power of God given through the crucified Christ. Because his power never falters. His power never fails. So it's the only unshakable foundation for your faith. The crucified Christ is the solid rock on which you can stand. We sing about it, Shades. All other ground is sinking sand, right? Shades, what... What kind of proclamation serves as your foundation? What word, what gospel, what good news about this is the answer for what you can finally trust in to build your life on, to construct an identity and trust and purpose? What, what proclamation serves as your foundation? Are you always after the next thing that sounds wise in this world? Whether from social media, scientists, politicians. If it's newer, it's better. It's wiser. It's more sure, right? Perhaps, perhaps you even approach churches that way, preaching that way, sermons that way. You're constantly looking for the latest thing, hoping that the next preacher can offer the latest life hack or, or the current pop psychology with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top, whatever will actually make me feel and look wise and trendy in the midst of my little Christian bubble and world. Shades, I love you enough to knock that pillar of self-promotion down. I promise you, I aim, I don't do this perfectly, but I aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It doesn't mean that I don't talk about other things, that we don't talk about marriage, that we don't talk about other portions of Christian doctrine, we don't talk about singleness, we don't talk about real life and real world things. No, it means we talk about everything through the lens of the crucified Christ. He's our bullseye. Every sermon ever preached in this place, better be able to end at this table because the broken body of Jesus and his blood poured out better be that sermon's foundation. He is the only firm foundation for your faith, the only place your faith can rest. 
Because when your faith is founded on him, you're no longer having to live in your own power. Your faith can rest because he provides the power. Shades, what kind of power serves as your foundation? What do you look for to hold you up in confidence in your daily life? What do you look for to to empower hope, to give you strength to, to press on? What What kind of power serves as your foundation? You can know just by looking like at what kind of leaders' voices you are drawn to. Are you drawn to the voices of leaders who crush their competition? The voices of leaders who can never admit any weakness? The voices of leaders who promote only themselves as powerful? Or are you drawn to voices that point you back to Christ? What about churches, pastors, preachers? What kind of churches and preachers are you attracted to? Ones who promise that they have found the secret that all other Christians have missed? They alone can tell you how to have true life in Christ? Churches or pastors who will guarantee that you'll experience the power of God if you buy their book, follow their prayer pattern, Dante in his Inferno envisioned a special place in hell for those who would sell the power of God. At the end of the day, what pastors and churches like that are selling you is themselves. They are your means. The go-between between you and truly glorious, joy-filled, happy life. They are your Savior. Shades, I love you enough to knock that pillar of self-promotion down. Don't, don't dare let your faith rest in me or in any other man. I am weak, chief of sinners, and will proudly put on display the fact that I have a lifelong struggle with depression. I daily take antidepressant medication. will proudly put on display every struggle I've had. I will tell you that last night, that yesterday, I horrendously failed my wife and fought, fought with the Spirit of the Lord because I did not want to humble myself and repent. I'm a sinful broken, weak man, and I am with you because of all of that in fear and trembling as I dare to speak about the living God. And my prayer is that your faith would rest in him, in him alone. Y'all do, some of you are newer to shades. This is the reason why the pulpit sits where it sits in our room, because no human being gets center stage. At the center of our room is the table and the cross, the things that point us most directly to the presence of Christ in our midst. Every preacher stands to the side as a pointer to him who's at the center. May your faith rest in him, his word, and his power alone. That power will never fail. Thus, it is the only firm foundation for your faith where it can rest. Shades, you have been called to be a saint. And that has one aim. Christ's glory, which is what will make you truly happy. 
Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy forever in the glory of Christ. You've been called to be a saint which has one aim, Christ's glory. And there is one means, Christ's power. He is the one foundation for your faith. The foolish and weak crucified Christ is the wise, powerful foundation for your life. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Amen.